Are you new in the product management space? Or do you wanna grow your product mindset? Welcome to Method and Madness of Products. I'm Manny, here with Stacy. We're two product leader experts who've been grinding and thriving in the industry for over a decade. We're here to help you learn the ropes in the product space. From different perspectives to insightful tips, we are your one-stop shop for product leadership. Let's Let's dive dive in. in. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for joining another episode. In today's episode, we will actually be talking to Chris Butler, who has joined us for as a special guest for a special topic. And that topic today is managing high performers. So managing our own lives is already difficult, let alone people. The workplace is like a melting bowl of different personalities and one way or another, whether you're a manager or a regular employee, you'll have to deal with high performing people. It seems very, very, very kind of down when having to talk to underperformers and there's anxiety and stress with that. But what happens when you have high performers? So. Again, for this episode, we brought in one of my uh, former colleagues. I've worked with him in the past. Great manager, really enjoyed his style. And Chris, do you mind giving the people an intro on yourself? And then let's dive into the discussion. That's great. Thank you for having me here, both uh, Manny and Stacey. It's great to be able to share some of my thoughts around this. I've been in the, uh, the industry as a product manager for over 20 years at this point. I've worked for very large companies. I've also worked for my own startup. I've worked for a VC as like a head of innovation. I've worked for a design consultancy. I've worked for a large consultancy. So you can say that I have experience kind of across the board when it comes to different types of organizational contexts, whether I'm managing myself (laughs) as every person should be doing or managing other people or managing people that are managers of other people. And so anyways, I'm I'm, I'm really excited to kind of share some of my thoughts around this and and really just uh, happy to be here. So thank you. Great. Well, we're so excited to have you on today. Um, The first thing that came to mind, Manny, when you were mentioning the topic is that, wow, do we even really manage high performers? A lot of times what I've seen is that we get so caught up in our meetings and our projects and managing underperformers that the high performers get ignored and don't really seem to get a lot of support. Maybe some of them are okay with that. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know, uh, you know, if I can call myself a high performer, you'll have to ask my previous managers. Um, but I do think that something that is really important is to get out of the way, right? Like I think that is something you don't want to be impeding them and in, in doing what they're trying to do, right? And they, a lot of people that tend to be considered high performers, especially in the product management world, tend to make their own work, right? And so they're not only looking at like, what are the possible solutions to go after something, but they're actually figuring out what are the right problems to go after, or even just like, what is the right domain or, or kind of like regime or region that we should even be going after. And so I think supporting them in that is really important. I do want to mention though, you know, even though Lenny had said that, you know, it's a, it can be a drain really to uh, work with people that are considered to be poor performers. I think there's something that's very similar between how you manage poor performers and high performers. And I would just say, like, what are the systemic things or or the processes or the environment or the context that you're giving those different people? Um, so for me, like, when I think about someone that is maybe a poor performer, I actually look at the systems that are in place before I think about whether it's them specifically. Um, and I think you should do the same thing for high performers, is that what you're really trying to do is you're trying to create a great environment 
environments where you know people that are very intelligent will make lots of mistakes they'll try lots of new things and they'll do stuff that you don't expect right and so i think that's where micromanagers really get it wrong with high performers is that they think that their way is the only way to do things and so i guess from my past experiences working with uh you know very high performing people it's it's not just getting out of the way but it's like setting the right environment and then in some way building environments so that it enables them even more and allowing them to actually do things that you may personally not think is the best thing, right? Like being able to say something from the standpoint of, you know, I, I you know, building that trust with someone else is, is part of that experience. But once you allow someone to have that trust, you give them, you know, kind of the consent for them to do the best job they can. I think it really kind of benefits the team that they're able to go off and do different things, right? Um, maybe turning around, I, I, I've been a, I've been a manager, you know, multiple times throughout my career, but I think I've kind of alternated back and forth between an individual contributor and being a manager. And I think every single time I do that, I start to see through different managers. And I've had really great managers. I've had not so great managers um, is especially when going back to that kind of culture of micromanagement. <clears throat> the first thing that will really turn me off as an employee is when I tell people how when I get told how to spend my own time. Right. Um, you give me good goals. You give me the really like where we're trying to go. And if you tell me that you don't think this meeting is something that I should be doing or I shouldn't be going after this process, it really kind of disheartens me because I feel like at that point you're not allowing me to actually do what I think is best for the situation. And so I think that's that's where this idea of like detachment in some way from the methods or the outputs and more thinking about how do you really set up the right types of context for um, you know, things like end goals or, you know, and, and there's a bunch of different ways to do this, like OKRs, um, the idea of kind of setting North Stars, all that type of stuff. These are all different terminologies for really just like trying to give people a direction and then let them go and discover and do what they're best at. Wow, that's very well said. I'm hearing a lot, too, of like a similar um, concept here of maybe room to fail a little bit, which we've talked about Absolutely. before. Can you I'm, I'm yeah. familiar with OKRs. Can you explain the uh, North Star concept? Yeah, I, I've seen it in a couple different places. So inside of large organizations, um, North Star has a kind of a meaning of what is the place we're trying to get to, where's the thing that's very far away. We don't know the steps to get there yet, but but that thing that is like the end goal that we're trying to get to. I think externally from these large companies that I've been at, um, there are there is like a, me a methodology around North Star metrics, and that tends to be the one metric that we want to track. Um, and that actually leads to, that those tend to be leading indicators that we're building something that's great for our customers. And so I've seen kind of a couple different terminologies that are there around North Star. So that is probably why it's also confusing. I think whenever I talk to people inside of these large organizations, they need one thing about North Star. Whenever I talk to people that are external um, and kind of in the you know more cutting edge of product management world on the internet, I would say that they mean something else. Um, yeah, so I think I think that's that's very interesting. And, and, and actually, just getting back to your, your point about how allowing for room to, to fail, I think this this concept of learning, right? Uh, one of my favorite Turing uh, quotes um, is actually a, he was mentioned he was saying this back during a symposium of mathematicians. Um, I can't remember the exact year; it was a long time ago, right? Um, but he when he was talking about mathematicians, he was saying that you know to have intelligence, uh, you cannot also be infallible. And the reason why he says that is to actually learn something, to do something that no one has ever done before, you probably have to fail, right? And so um, I think this is where the idea of like, what does failure look like inside of your organization and how do you allow that type of failure? Um, how do you 
not necessarily minimize it or how do you like kind of contain it? Because I think in some cases, right, there are going to be times where a really high performer will build something that is an utter failure. And that's okay though, right? Because if we think about this more as like a long-term thing with, with that idea of that person, right, long-term, um, what we want to do is we want to give them all the fodder to become great people, right? And continue to be great people and continue to learn. And so, I mean, examples of that would be like the Fire Phone from Amazon, right? Like that is something that was probably a billion dollar failure, right? And there are probably very high performing people that ended up creating that failure, right? But it, it also, you know, in some ways led to a lot of really amazing technologies when it came to the way that they now look at the home space and, and smart homes and things like that. So, so you can make some arguments that even very large failures, right? Like, and especially large companies that have the resources should be investing in big failures in some way. You just don't know which ones are the failures, right? And, and so I think that space to do that in some way and to, and, you know, I know there's a lot of people that there's a bunch of people I've talked to about like celebrating failure. I think that's really hard to really like celebrate failure um, because I think that gets back to like what, what is good feedback as well, right? If we want to talk about how we help guide really high performers <clears throat> is like in something, you know, where you're, you're trying to give them actually really good feedback. And uh, that idea of like critical feedback does have to hurt a little bit, right? I, I, I've used some of these concepts in some things I've talked about as far as like adversarial product management, for example, is about this idea of like how you build something better through kind of building the good tensions or having it kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, hit at a little bit. And I liken it to the idea of like a sparring partner, right? So I, I've, I used to do a long time ago when I was way younger, you know, things like Muay Thai kickboxing and jujitsu and stuff like that. And this, the coach is there to help improve your technique, teach you new technique, and kind of like give you the overall ability to be a good performer at something. Um, but your sparring partner is there to actually go after, after all of the things that you're not so good at or things that could be exploited or things that should just like have an adversary to improve, right? Now, what you don't want to do is you want it to hurt, right? Like you want it to hurt a tiny bit and, and all good feedback, actually, all great feedback hurts a little bit. Um, what I would say though is you don't want to injure someone. So you don't want to like put someone out of commission in such a way that they can't like spar again. And so I think this, you know, when we're taking the analogy to the way we, we kind of like help high performers is we want to be very clear and very direct with the feedback we have with them, right? It's not always going to feel good, but we want to make sure it's in this place where it's like, I'm doing this because I care. Right. And I'm doing this because yeah. it's something that you need to actually hear this for you to be even better at what you do. Yeah. And so that's good. I think the idea of like really good feedback is, is another really amazing and important aspect. Yeah, I totally agree. I have definitely been in meetings before where I've got an idea and someone's like, well, why are you doing it that way? Why don't you just do it this way? And I'm like, oh, I feel kind of stupid. But then I realized, well, I came to the table with something and they made it better and we're a better team together. And that's what we're there for. So yeah, I've, I've totally seen that in action as well. And it's, it's pretty magical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And I think it resonates a lot, especially in this space. I guess the one thing I do want to circle back on is the, um, the premise of when you have a high performer and I think you kind of touched on it a little bit with the feedback, but what about when you see the high performer, the engagement? So they're still performing, but they're like checked out and we've experienced that, right? Um, and so I, I, I'm curious, like, what's your take on that kind of angle? Yeah, it, this, is, this is really tough because I, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of kind of slack or idleness within the world of doing great work, 
right? And and so one of the things I do just personally as an aside, I guess it kind of as a side, but I, I block off like Wednesdays and Fridays now um, for no meetings. And the reason why is because like if I don't have kind of that openness in some some weeks, I can't get anything done. I can't be one. I can't be reactive, but I also can't then be very proactive about things. And so I guess you know one person's like acknowledge like feeling of someone else being checked out could be that they're kind of resting or coasting for the time being while they figure something else out, right? I think there's this like spectrum between simmering and executing, right? And um, the way I tend to work tends to be very like, uh, you know, I want to simmer a lot on something until I'm, you know, there's this like threshold point where I'm motivated to execute or, you know, I'm working with another person or for a manager that then pushes me to say, hey, actually, you've simmered enough. <laughs> we need to move forward. So, and, and that's like, you know, again, pine boxing is helpful and that type of stuff, too, because I could just there's some things I've been simmering on for like years. Right. Um, and, and so so like I, I think there's there's some value there about allowing people to either simmer or slack or be checked out a little bit. Right. Um, I mean, there's there's like been a discourse on Twitter that I've been reading through a little bit the last like week or two is just, you know, um, is there something good about a, an employee that has a side hustle or like a side project? Right. Um, and I've always been someone that has had side projects or side interests or things like that. And and so I, I do think there's value in that. I don't think it's for everybody. Right. And I, but that also shows that I've been very poor at like picking hobbies. Right. Like, um, so I, I think there's something there about like, I just, I, I try to take up golf during the pandemic. And so I go, I've gone to the driving range and stuff like that, but I, I wouldn't say that like yeah. I'm great at hobbies. Right. Um, I also have four, oh, you know, four kids. And so that's, that keeps me very busy. Um, but I, I do think there's, there's something about like, yeah, like how do you detect whether someone's checked out, like from yeah. the standpoint of that they're looking for another job. Right. And they don't want to be there anymore. Right. Um, and that that's a that's an important conversation to have is, you know, I don't think people feel safe enough to be able to have that conversation with a lot of managers where it's like, yeah, you know, I, I just don't feel it here anymore. Right. I think the benefit of being a large company is that usually it's built in that people will rotate around every, say, two years. Right. Um, and a lot of large companies I've been at have have like basically that's the expectation. You don't have to even talk to your manager about it. You just do it. Right. Um, so I think there's something there. That, that is something where like having the right type of trusting relationship with someone, and usually the way I try to go about that is, you know, making it very clear from the beginning that, you know, the reason why I'm here, like there's a couple different reasons why a manager exists, right? Like one is just the mechanisms of management, right? Like how do I, you know, make sure that you're doing, you're, you know, checking all the boxes that the organization requires, um, certain types of HR issues, like that type of stuff, right? Second thing could be coaching, right? Like, how am I helping you be a higher performer in some way? Um, and then the last one could be a leader, right? Um, and so the leadership is like, you know, I'm, I'm higher up in the hierarchy, so I see a larger purview. I'm invited to different meetings than you. And so I'm helping provide not only context, but kind of like, what is my opinion or, or kind of intuition around something, right? And so every leader or manager will do those three different things. I think that I've seen a lot of people that just do the manager mechanistic side of the world and they end up forgetting those other parts, right? But if you are really like focused on that coaching aspect, then the types of things you can say to people are like, you know, hey, um, you know, I want you to be a great employee, whether it's here or somewhere else. And so from my perspective, right, I want you to be as effective as possible while you're here, right? And I want you to stay here. Um, but the thing is, is that I know you're not, right? Like this shouldn't be your last job unless you're, you know, like, unless you're being hit by a bus like tomorrow, right? Like, <laughs> like there should be something else that you're doing out there. Or win the, the lottery. 
Stay positive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's think positively on that one. Very fatalistic about this. Although I did have the one that, like, you know, uh, called in, like, rich one day, basically, because they had worked for another large company that IPO'd. Oh. <laughs> and so, um, so anyways, yeah, that's that's true, right? Like, there's, po- there's good or bad reasons why this could be your last job, right? But I, I think it's important to be very clear that, you know, and I think I've built really good relationships with people that have worked for me previously is because of that fact that, like, that's what I care about is I care about like you being as good as you can be now and then long term that's up to you but I'm, I'm here to give you the tools for now right and and hopefully that that in some way provides continuity to all the great things that you're going to do in the future too and so um yeah I, I think that's where again like allowing someone to coast for a little bit allow someone to like figure things out I I mean I have a very hard time I think at large companies a lot of the time um, unless I have a manager that really understands me is because I don't I don't fit into the usual I, I I'm kind of a natural contrarian when it comes to the way that organizations work and it's just the, my kind of personality I see there's a benefit to it right like I think it's the reason why I get put into certain types of roles that I am um, but also like there have been times where I've worked for managers and they just did not understand how I did what I did or why I did what I did um, so I think there's like there's something to be said for high performers too that they need to be able to understand whether this person understands them, right, and, and understands their value. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of the reciprocal thing, is that it's it's partially on the manager, right, or a sponsor, right, that's the other thing in large companies, you want to start to get sponsors that are helping you out in those, like, review and performance meetings. But the other side is, like, are you the right employee for this person, right? Like, if I, I definitely would not be able to work in just, like, a regular product management role where what they're focused on is, like, a very particular feature, they want this, like, super buttoned up in a particular way, and they want me to follow a process, they want me to do all these things, when the reality is, I'd be, like, questioning all those things. <laughs> so I would not be a good employee yeah. to do that, right? There are people that are great at that type of thing. And those people are like, again, foundational to great product teams. Um, but I think that's the other thing is like understanding as a high performer, how are you a high performer? I think is like a really important aspect of this. Yeah, I agree. I think too that it's so important. You touched on this point of having this relationship with your high performer and truly understanding them as a person and vice versa, right? So the high performer does need to get vulnerable and slow down for a minute and tell you, you know, what they're all about and what they need. But as managers, it's so important to get to know people that are working with you and for you and understand what makes them tick, what makes them happy, what upsets them, you know, telling them what meetings they should and shouldn't go to is probably not a good idea for certain people. Maybe other people exactly. need that guidance, but yeah, I well, think yeah, um, that's a good question. So important. Right, to your point, like, yeah. the question of like, what are you getting out of this meeting? Right. Like, yeah. like, that's fine. If someone's bad at time management, like that's absolutely something that everybody actually can be better about. Right. right. Um, yeah. So, so I think like there's, there's maybe the tone by which something comes, comes across. Right. And, and yeah. the way that that relationship is set up. And so I, I, yeah, I think there's, there's this idea of how are you like, another thing I think is really important when we talk about like the systems that are in place around a team is focusing on um, the, all the different ways that a, a person will get feedback right? Not just a high performer. And so that means not only the idea of like the manager employee type of relationship, but the product manager and their cross-functional team, the product manager and other product managers on the team. Um, even the idea of like product managers and skip levels and skip level peers and all these different places that you end up getting feedback. 
I don't think we invest enough into those spaces to allow for healthy feedback to happen. Um, and so this is why like, I've advocated things like product management critiques, where a bunch of different product managers get together. Like I've seen it executed as like masterminds or circles or whatever. But those are kind of like valuable meetings. Another one is, you know, how do you end up training together to be able to understand each other's like decision making models? And that's not just the idea of like yeah. methodologies or processes, but also just like strategic thinking. And so, you know, I've, I've started to focus on things like decision forcing cases, which are like a type of case study to get after that type of thing. So I, I think like in general, as a manager, your job um, ideally is to help with these things. I mean, I think this is why like product operations exists as like a job role. And that's why I've been doing this like PMing the PM experience type of work is because managers won't always have time to do this. Right. And and they will they will focus more on the managerial mechanistic aspects rather than this like people centric uh, way to understand systems. And it's about, in, in the end, like, I was listening to a podcast about um, kind of from a bunch of safety pr uh, professionals, right? These are people that work on like oil rigs or in air traffic control and stuff like that. And this idea of like safety and risk in understanding something very important when we talk about like the dynamic within the team, actually the most important dynamic is between two individuals on that team. And so it gets very complex very fast, right? Because these groups are complex, right? You, you get kind of like, you know, a, a, a lot of, like once you start having more and more people you start having more and more connections and so i think that's why thinking about how does this person interact with this person and creating either meeting containers or opportunities for those things to happen in a good way um, i think ends up becoming that should be the manager's job managers don't always have time that's why i think like great operational people tend to focus on the systems that are there um, in a way that is not just checking the box, like we just need to have this meeting every week and that's it. It's more about like, how does this meeting work out so that all of the people are getting something and how do those high performers, you know, maybe going to like another topic around high performers is like, how do you get your high performers to allow other people to learn why they're high performing? And, you know, maybe at first mimic some of their behaviors, but longer term figure out their own like high performingness, right? This, this is something that I think product managers have struggled with in a lot of organizations where our job tends to take us where we just have to become managers and the managers of managers and whatever, right? We have to be, we have to go that path. And the reality is like seeing really strong individual contributors when they're dealing with things that are super broad as far as context, I think teaches an awful lot to very junior PMs as well. Because that idea of like scaling um, the type of complexity or weir like weirdness that you have to deal with or ambiguity you have to deal with, I think is super valuable to learn. Um, and we should be learning from each other. Like I, I think this is like the idea of like doctors, right? Like if you want someone that's going to like diagnose what you have, you probably want to get the person that's like super old because they've seen everything a million times. They have like great pattern matching capability. Um, but if you want someone that's going to like do a surgery on you, you probably want a really young surgeon because they know all the latest techniques, right? And there's probably some balance or trade-off around like capability and experience, right? Um, so, so that's why, again, like these idea of like junior and senior people working together and learning from each other, I think also applies to product managers, right? There's, there's an intuition that a lot of experts or people with extreme tenure have but they also don't know how to explain it to other people, right? That's the whole mm, problem yeah. with this idea of like explicit versus tacit knowledge that people end up having, right? You can write down a document that that lists out some of the stuff you know, but that kind of tacit knowledge stuff comes out from the standpoint of like you've you've been seeing these like experience patterns over and over again. And there's a whole world called naturalistic decision making this, that this comes from where Gary Klein, who, you know, very, very famous, like, uh, person around just like decision science, he was the creator of the pre-mortem, so much of like things that he's done around naturalistic decision making that, you know, a lot of people would say it's like ESP, but the reality is like they're looking 
at certain cues in the environment and they're throwing away all the noise. And the senior people being able to teach that through showing to junior people is incredibly important for their development. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also think that senior people working with juniors um, provides them with a little bit of an insight into maybe how they entered the product world. And every time I mentor somebody who's new to the field, it's always so motivating to me because their excitement is contagious and their enthusiasm is contagious. And, you know, I'll have a call with one of my um, STEM mentees, you know, every couple of weeks. And every time I talk to them, I walk away just like, gosh, I really love this field. I'm like, wow, that's a really good call. I'm so excited to have another one. Are you saying Absolutely. you're still not excited, Stacy? You haven't talked to Manny. You haven't talked to me enough. I'm always excited. That's true. That's true. Or I'll there's call Manny if, if she's not available. There's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of energy that PMs have, right? And some some are more yeah. low key than others. And then there's Manny. Um, and so I, I guess you know I, I I would totally agree with you. I think there's. There's something that's really, and it's something, there's a reason why, like, I've focused a lot on mentorship and kind of how I do writing and giving talks inside the community is because I do get a lot back. And even just taking, like, a 30-minute call with someone, um, you know, it's something I try to prioritize as much as possible. I'm not the type of person, by the way, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, you want me to review your resume or do mock interviews with you, I'm not the right person for that. But what I would say, because I get a lot of requests for that, by the way, <laughs> um, but like, but the things I do want to talk about is I want to talk about like, what are the really the core problems you're dealing with as a product manager? And that's either as like a very new product manager getting up to speed or even a very experienced one. And because I think these problems, right, if we think about what product managers do, um, you know, the problems that we understand at a very deep level are like capital to us, right? It, it helps us really get at a deeper understanding of the world that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I think there's there's definitely like a, a, a lot of pros to taking on mentors or even just having coffee chats with different random product managers. And I've used a lot of different things. There's at the large company I'm at right now, we have like a way to just like randomly meet other product managers. Uh, Lunch Club is a great example of like a free site where you can just like meet other product people um, on a regular basis. So I think there's like some value in this idea of just like randomly meeting people and talking about the problems that they have in some way. Great advice. Awesome. Awesome. So as we wrap up here, listeners, um, Chris, thank you for, for joining. Um, great insight. I knew I picked the right guy to come on. <laughs> um, so well, so as as we exit, I just want to remind the listeners that there's no such thing as the right or perfect way to manage high performers because everyone's different. Every situation is different. And it depends on how much rapport and how much trust you've built up with that employee individual, as we have discussed in earlier podcasts and how the fail fast and leader versus manager. And so we do want to thank Chris again for coming and providing his insight. Thanks, Stacy. As always, you had excellent questions and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode until next time. Hope you enjoyed and learned as much as we did from this episode. If you haven't yet, follow us on all of our social media platforms for more awesome and insightful product leadership discussions and content. Check out the description for the links. Don't hesitate to message us with any comments, recommendations, or questions. We'd love to hear from you. Looking forward to our next discussion. Until, Until next, next time. time.